At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we're turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face-to-face with whatever's keeping us from answering God's call as Isaiah did. Send me. All right, this morning we have an opportunity to dive into God's Word. So if you would, take your Bible out and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be in the same passage we were in last week, and we're going to be in the same passage we will be in in next week. And uh, for three weeks we're going to take a look at these few verses. And as we look at these verses, taking a look at God's desire to send us. Not only God's desire to save us, but God's desire to send us as missionaries. As God has given us the gospel message, he calls us not to keep it to ourselves, but to go and to share it with the ends of the earth. And so we're gonna be looking at the call of, on God, of God in Isaiah's life um, as we kind of step into this this morning. So let me begin in uh, chapter six, beginning in verse one. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go. As we look at this overwhelming passage, as we look at um, getting a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, it's as though heaven and earth for a moment are connected in a way where we get a chance to see God's throne room and also contemplate here what's happening on the earth. And we see that God uses this opportunity to place an amazing call on Isaiah's life. But you know, as we live this life, a lot of times we spend so much of our time and so much of our focus down here. Right, because here's where all the activity is. Here's where all the responsibility is. Here we're coming and going, running at such a fast pace that sometimes we forget to consider heaven and what's going on in heaven. Right, this gives us a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. God is on his throne. He's seated on his throne, meaning that he is at peace because he is king of all. Everything that's going on down here, God is aware of. Everything that's going on down here doesn't frighten God, doesn't catch God off guard. He is sitting on his throne where he is continually worshipped. 
where the seraphim continually surround him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. That's the part of the passage we focused in on last week. But it's easy for us to keep our minds and to keep our hearts down here. And I pray that through this series and for the rest of our lives, we would continually consider what's going on in heaven. So let me just ask you this question as we begin to consider this passage and think where we're at today. What is your greatest problem? Like right now in your life, what is your greatest problem? I know it's that time of year where the orange barrels of doom have come out and we're trying to navigate getting to and from. And so maybe your biggest challenge is construction and trying to navigate, like I gotta get from here to there in this amount of time and you're learning new routes to get different places. Maybe that's it. Maybe you're sitting here today struggling under the weight of inflation and you're sitting here and you're like, I don't know how the bills are gonna get paid. So your biggest challenge right now, the biggest problem that is before you is financial. Or maybe you're here today and you've just come from a home where there is no peace, where either you and your kids aren't getting along or you and your parents aren't getting along or, or you and your spouse aren't getting along. And so your, your biggest problem right now is relationally. Man, we live in a world where there's big problems. What is your biggest problem right now? Well, you want me to tell you what your biggest problem is? All of those things are problems, but they're not the biggest problem. The biggest problem that is in your life and in my life is sin. Sin is the biggest problem. Sin has consequences and sin has ramifications. And so because we live in sin, it always has different challenges. But you and I, in our own ways, have rejected God. We've rejected his rule and his reign over our hearts. We don't even want to consider what's going on in heaven because we only want to live for what's down here. The Bible calls that sin and this devastating effect and this devastating consequences because the rejection of God's law is that sin does incomparable, incomprehensible, inescapable damage to us both physically, emotionally, intellectually, relationally, and spiritually. Sin damages every part of our being. And the Bible tells us that we've all fallen that we've all fallen into this trap, that none of us have met the standards of God's glory. We've all fallen short of that standard, his standard of holiness. And because of that, we have a great problem, and that's sin. And here's the problem with sin, is that you can't do anything to fix your sin problem. You can't be better. You can't be a different person. You can't think the right ways. You can't do anything about it. You're stuck in your sin, and I'm stuck in my sin. I have no ability to save myself. And so it leads us to the greatest need. What is the greatest need of you and all humanity? Forgiveness. The biggest problem is sin, and the greatest need is forgiveness. We need God's forgiveness. I love how an anonymous author put it. He says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need would have been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need was pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was 
and is forgiveness. And God sent us a Savior. You see, you can amen that. That's right. Have you ever thought about the ultimate aim of God's word? I mean, have you ever considered, like, why did God give us this? Why did he give us his words in a revealed form? Maybe you've thought your life that this book, in this book you'll find inner peace. Or maybe in this book you'll find financial wisdom. Or maybe through reading this book you'll find self-actualization. You know, there are some people that come to this and treat this as like a self-help book. Like seven steps to a healthier, happier life. I can find it in here. Well, I want you to understand that the aim, the, the, the end all gain and the aim of this word is to not change your behavior. It's not in for just changing your behavior and giving you a happy life. The aim of God's word, the purpose of God's word is that we would know that God is holy and we would know that we are sinful and that we would know that there is an opportunity for forgiveness. So a holy God and a sinful man can be reconciled together. That's what this book tells us. That there is hope. That your greatest problem, my greatest problem, is that we sin and that we are sinners. And we are in desperate need of salvation. We're in desperate need of forgiveness. And this tells us that there is a way and it comes through the person of Christ. That the glory of God is shown to us through the face of Christ. And it's through faith in Christ that we can receive forgiveness and the relationship with the God of the universe can be restored and we can live not as enemies of God but as children of God. And many of us here in the room today have experienced that forgiveness of God where we've come to the come to consider the person of Jesus and we've given him control of our lives. We've, we've confessed our sins before him and we've said, Lord, please come in and be the savior and Lord of my life. And he has, and we've experienced that deep, profound forgiveness of having our sins wiped away. That is a blessing. That is an overwhelming blessing. And what we're gonna see today as we look at this passage is that God's forgiveness compels us to go. God's forgiveness compels us to go. God's forgiveness is not meant to be passive for us, right? God's forgiveness in your life, we don't sit back and consider it and be like, yes, I'm forgiven. I'm glad God's done with that. I'm glad that chapter of my life is over. Now I can rest. No, no, as those that have been forgiven, we have the greatest message of all time that God can take a rebel and turn them into a son, that God can take someone that's full of sin and enslaved to sin and give them freedom. That's a message that it would be shameful for us to share or keep to ourselves. And so yet God's forgiveness calls us to go. And this is what I want us to consider this question today. Is has forgiveness reshaped your life? Have you considered Jesus come to give him your life and has this forgiveness just totally changed the way that you live 
or are you still unchanged? God calls us to go. I want to, as we jump into this text, I want to remind us of where we're at in the setting of history. You see, by this time, by the time of Isaiah, the nation of Israel, which was at one time made up of 12 tribes, at this time, the nation has been divided. Ten of the tribes have, from the north have recontinued re- to call themselves Israel. But the nation of Israel at this time has had king after king that has done evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the northern kingdom has turned from God to turn to idols and idolatry and worship of all created things. And they've turned their back on the glory of God. And now at this time, God is bringing about his discipline to his people through the nation of um, Assyria. So that's what's taking on in the northern kingdom. People of God have turned their back on God. Well, we have two tribes in the southern kingdom known as Judah. The tribes of Judah didn't get as fast that way. Instead, what we see is they've just come from a time of following King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a king that in the beginning of his kingship did did good in the sight of God. Tried to reestablish temple worship and tried to get people to come back to God and see him as their um, all-sufficient source of life. But later on in life, pride stepped in to Uzziah's life. Uzziah, as we talked about last week, did some things that were detestable in the sight of God. And because of his turning away from God and his um, being struck with leprosy and living 11 years in isolation, during that time, the people of God of the southern kingdom turned their back on God as well. They began giving themselves over to earthly things And everything that was good is now undone. And we come to the beginning of this passage. What we see is King Uzziah is dead. There's no king sitting on the throne in Israel. And that is very dangerous. Because now that the earthly king is dead, the nations without kings were seen as vulnerable, weak, and ripe for invasion. And so the people of God in the southern kingdom are starting to look around and beginning to worry What's going to happen to us as a people? Who's going to lead us? And it's at this time that Isaiah, who is a prophet of God, has this vision into heaven. God shows up in Isaiah's life. And he sees this vision into the throne room. And he sees that God is the one that's on the throne. That God is above every other throne. Earthly thrones may come and go, but God is victorious. And he's seated there on the throne with all authority. And we see this beautiful picture of what the throne room looks like. We see the holiness of God being proclaimed through the seraphim as they fly around and proclaim, holy, holy, holy is God almighty. We see smoke filling the place as God's presence is there in the smoke. And we even see a picture of the train of the robe of the king. You see, back in that time, Kings could distinguish themselves about which was a mightier king over the other king by the length of their robes. The longer the robe was, the more mighty the king was. And the material of the robe also showed about how mighty the king was. And in this case, we see that Isaiah sees the king's robe filling the temple or filling the throne. There's no space in the throne room where the, te- the, the robe is not. And so it's a picture of the majesty, the power, and the worth of this king who sits on the throne. Isaiah sees this. 
And how does he respond? When he is ushered into the, seeing the holiness of God and the glory of God all around him. Verse six tells us, he sees all this and he proclaims, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember last week as we were talking about this, when we see the holiness of God, there's something about it that is so attractive. There's something about the holiness of God that wants to just draw us in, but there's also something about the holiness of God that evokes great fear. Because God is holy, meaning that God is different. God is separate. God is of greatest value. God is of greatest worth. God is of greatest power. Everything that we are not, he is. And so to see him as he is, we desire that. We're in awe of that, but we're also terrified by it. And Isaiah is here having an opportunity to witness what's going on. He's witnessing the scene of worship, but he can't join in. He should be joining in. His voice should be joining that of the seraphim, saying, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. I bow in your presence, and he cannot. He cannot join the chorus. He cannot sing the song because he is full of despair. He says, woe is me. Then NIV translates the next phrase. It says, I am ruined. The ESV says, I am lost. But in essence, what he's saying in the, in the Hebrew is, I am silent. I am silent. Woe is me. My mouth cannot speak of your praises because when I'm in your presence, when I see you for who you really are, I see myself for who I really am. I'm a man unclean lips because it's with these lips that I've cursed God it's with these lips that I've cursed other people it's with these lips that I've cursed creation and Isaiah's looking around and he's like I, I can't sing praises because praises haven't been coming from my lips cursing has so woe is me I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips I mean, I, I'm aware that I'm a sinful person. Like, I'm aware that there are things that God is still working on. I'm aware that I'm a child that's been forgiven by God, but still there's sin in my life. And, I, and I'm becoming to become more aware. The closer I get to the holiness of the Lord, the more time I spend with God, the more I see myself as being sinful. That my attitudes and my affections and my actions go against this God that I so desire to know. And if that's true in my own life, I can only imagine how true it is in, in our own lives. If we could somehow, if there was like a, a meter over our heads this morning that could somehow like give us an indicator of how sinful we are. Some of you would be looking around and be like, at least I'm not that bad. At least I'm not that bad. And you're like, oh, I wish I could be like him. Or I wish I could be like her. I'm glad we don't have those indicators. But just imagine for a moment the total amount of sin that is in this room. 
Like how much you brought with you this morning. Right, you might have like been in the car on the way here, like cursing the person in the back seat or cursing the light or cursing the person that's right next to you. Like your mouth was full of cursing and then you come into this place and then you try to sing songs of glory and glorifying God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. We are an utterly despicable people because we are sinful You may be sitting here and you're like, hey, I'm not as bad as the next. Yeah, you are. You are. Because even in that thought, by yourself, makes you worse than the guy next to you. Right? We are sinful people and we're never going to truly understand the holiness of God until we see him for who he is and we see ourselves for who we really are. See, the holiness of God, some people don't want to even see that part of God. Instead of looking to the heavens, looking to God, they turn their backs. And instead, we're like, I'm not, I, I know he's there. I'm not even going to address him. I can't, I can't, I can't even. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn over here and I'm going to start making monuments and things that, that for myself. I, I can't even think about God. But what I can do is I can do things that make me look good. And I can spend time, like, getting everyone to think that I am something that I'm not. But here, Isaiah sees the Lord as he really is. And Isaiah sees himself as a sinful man and sees himself as a part of a people that are absolutely sinful. And he's in desperate need. He knows he's in desperate need because he brings nothing to the table. He brings nothing that the Lord can look at his life and say, that's good. It's all bad. And so we must come to that place in our own lives. When we see God as holy and see ourselves as sinful, we see and feel our desperation. And it's at that moment, then God can step in and can save us. Because this is what we see is that we're called to see God for who he is, and then once we do, we are to receive God's forgiveness. Look at what he says in verse five. He says, then I said, woe to me, for I am a man, Uh, woe to me as I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king of the Lord of hosts. So he finally sees God for who he is. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and he said, behold. So catch this for a minute. This seraphim, whose role and responsibility in creation is to cry holy, 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 holy to the Lord for all eternity. Pauses pauses for a moment to not only be a worshiper of God, but do an act of worship before the Lord. And what does he do? He becomes the agent of forgiveness. He comes and he says, behold, as he touched him with his lips, he says, your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. What a mighty thing. Like, don't miss this. 
Like, don't miss what's, what's happening here. This agent, this messenger from the Lord comes and, and spares him, speaks words of life over him, that God has forgiven his sin. And then I have to imagine in just an instant that seraphim flies away and he goes back to, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Right? Isaiah has been forgiven He knows his sinfulness. He knows he cannot approach the throne. And yet this fiery burning one who was a messenger from the Lord comes and touches his mouth with the burning. Like part of me, like wants to be that seraphim. Right, don't you? Like don't you want to be in the face of someone that realizes that they're lost and you're like, here you go. and they're like, oh my goodness, this is what forgiveness feels like? Like I was dead in my trespasses and sins and now I'm alive? Yes, yes you are. All the glory and honor and majesty of God in this place. And I want you to see how how this progression here, what happens. Is that Isaiah first sees who God is. He sees him in his perfection and is the one that is of greatest worth. And then Isaiah sees himself in light of his own sin. He sees himself in desperate need of forgiveness. Then third, God sends a servant to forgive him. His guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for, which means that his sin is covered over. It is pardoned. Now, I want us to dig a little bit deeper into this because we, we need to see God for who he really is. Right? I, I love how Leviticus 19, chapter 19, verse 2 says this. This is a command from God. He says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So, so we see one side of the coin, right, of, of God's character. Right? He, he says he's holy, right? He's separate from us. And then he gives us this impossible task. He says, you be holy. Be holy just like I'm holy. Like, this is who I am. It's in my character. I'm holy. Now you be holy like me. And we sit back and we're like, I can't do that. I, I'm, not light, I'm not omniscient. I'm not all powerful. I'm weak and I'm fragile and I'm feeble and I get afraid. And God says, no, be holy. So in that, in that essence, we, we know like we have to shrink back against God's holiness. But then we look at the other side of the coin and we can see this most clearly. We see it throughout the Old Testament, but we also see it through the Apostle John when he says, God is love. God is love. So the other side of the coin is God's love. And if we don't see God as both sides of those coin, both sides of the coin, then we get a messed up view of God. If God is just love, then you can go do whatever you want and it doesn't matter. But you can't do that apart from God's holiness because God keeps us accountable. And so when we see God as both holy and forgiving, it's like his love makes us think that we're all accepted, that we're all forgiven. And then his holiness makes us think that none of us are worthy, none of us are forgiven. And so we're caught in this tension. Like we're still over here as sinful beings, and yet we see God as wanting to love us, wanting to forgive us, wanting to be with us. But because God's holy, we're separate from him. And so we're in this void that nothing we can do on our own can overcome it. 
that is where Jesus comes in. This is the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus makes all the difference. I love what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. He says, for our sake, he, being God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, now, let me unpack that just for a second. I I love, a couple weeks ago, we took a look at, uh, on Good Friday, the cross, where Jesus died, and then we celebrate on Easter Sunday his resurrection. But what I love about the picture of the cross that gets me every time is that on the cross, Jesus' arms are outstretched. Right? And in, in, in that, there's a visual picture, but there's also a spiritual thing that's taking place. As Jesus is dying on the cross, there's a great mighty exchange. We see the holiness of, and love of God incarnate in a person. And then at the same time, we see the holiness and love of God and the sin of man like come together on the work of the cross where the wrath of God gets poured out for the sins of man. So God's holiness comes onto the cross and in the person of Christ, Jesus endures the wrath of God. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us. So in essence, what Jesus is doing on the cross is he is doing the work of reconciliation. That's why his arms are stretched out wide. He's got a holy God over here and a sinful man over here. And in his death on the cross, he is pulling them together. He is bringing us through himself back to God. He himself becomes the bridge. And this is the mighty thing about the gospel is that Jesus himself is our sacrifice. Jesus himself is our justifier. Jesus himself is the sacrifice of atonement. Because remember, in order for sin to be given, forgiven, something has to be sacrificed. And Isaiah saw it through a coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice. That coal was taken and was given to him as he believed in it and he was found forgiven. We don't need coals on altars. We have Jesus who died on an altar. But didn't stay there. Because you know the problem with living sacrifices is they get up off the altars. And that's what Jesus did. He did the work on the altar went to a grave, and God raised him from the dead. And that's why we know that Jesus is our all in all. So receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Second, not only are we to receive forgiveness, we are to share God's forgiveness with others. How does Isaiah respond to God's forgiveness? Well, we see in verse uh, 8. He says, and I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go with me? And then I said, here am I, send me. You see, forgiveness in his life prepared him for the mission. Like in order to be on mission with God, to be a bearer of the message of forgiveness, he had to be forgiven. You're never going to tell anyone something that you haven't first experienced yourself. Right? That's impossible. Like I'm not going to go out there and tell you, hey, you can fly. Go, you, can, you can fly. 
right? Unless I've experienced it myself, and I have, because I can go to the airport, and I can sit down on a plane, and I can get, and I can tell you about that, but I can't tell you you can fly on your own. You've got to have some other help. So we've got to have experienced it first, and that's what Isaiah experienced. He experienced the, the forgiveness, and then he's able to go on the mission, and then this forgiveness launches him out into his calling. His calling was to go and to tell about the forgiveness and to tell about the message of Christ. And I love how 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 helps us to see how what Christ has done now calls us to the mission that we're called to. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Did you catch that? Christ was the messenger of reconciliation, being able to bring holy God and a sinful man together through his work on the cross. And then you and I have that ministry of reconciliation. We're called to bring a sinful people to a holy God through the message of Christ, this ministry of reconciliation. I think one of the greatest ways that I ever saw this show up was while serving in Poland, uh, on a mission trip. I was on a short-term mission trip to Poland. And we were talking with some of the church leaders uh, about the ways in which they care for their community. And one of the things that they told us is they said, our community is so deeply divided. Our community is so desperately divided. There, there's this part of town where the, the Jews live. Then there's the part of town where the Catholics live. And then there's this small part of town where those that uh, are Protestant or those that are Christians live. And he says, you see this everywhere. The, the three groups don't get along. And probably one of the places where this shows up most is in the cemetery. He says, we walked through the cemetery. He's like, one time, the pastor was like, I walked through the cemetery one time and my heart was broken because our community is so deeply divided. And I'm like, tell me more, what's that about? And it's, as it turns out that the, the cemetery there is owned by the Catholics, the, the Catholic organization there. And in, in the, the Catholics, uh, the Catholic part of the cemetery, there's also a part for the uh, Jewish people. And it's a separate part. It's not a part of the, the main cemetery. It's over in the corner, cast to the side. And it's got this big gate all the way around it. And it's like a wall and a gate all the way around it. And nobody cares for that part of the cemetery. The rest of it gets mowed. The rest of uh, the tombstones are cared for and all of that, but not the Jewish part. And the pastor was saying, I was walking through this cemetery and I saw this and my heart was broken and he said you know what we do now we care for that part of the cemetery every week they're out there making sure it gets mowed they're caring for the tombstones they're cutting away the weeds they're doing all of that stuff and people know that they're not Jewish and so he says I can't tell you the number of times we've been out there people are like what are you doing he's like we're caring for these because Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you and Jesus loves everyone. So a visible representation of the ministry of reconciliation. You know, I, I, it's not too hard to look around and see how we're divided like that. And what if Christians, what if you and I took our message serious? 
took the mission that God has given us, and we stood in the gap between the holy God and sinful man, and we sought to bring them together. I'll tell you what, can't get there unless, first of all, you yourself have received the forgiveness of the Lord. Maybe that's your response today. Maybe your response today is to, to consider Christ and to give him your heart and all of that and allow him to forgive you. But you also can't get there if you are not forgiving others. Maybe today you're here and there's someone that's hurt you in the past and you need to begin working through this ministry of reconciliation to forgiving that person. Or maybe you, you're the one that's harmed someone and maybe your call today is to go and to find that person that you have harmed and ask forgiveness. But at the end of the day, God has not given us forgiveness so that we can experience it just for ourselves. We are called to go. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.